Hello, everyone. Welcome to Better Health While Aging, a podcast that gives you strategies and information about improving the health and well-being of older adults. We discuss common health problems that affect people over age 60, the best ways to prevent and manage those problems, and we also often address common concerns and dilemmas that come up with aging parents and other older loved ones, like what to do if you're worried about falls or safety or memory, or even the quality of an older person's health care. I'm your host, Dr. Leslie Kernison. I'm a practicing geriatrician, so that means I'm a medical doctor specialized in geriatrics, which is the art and science of modifying healthcare so that it works better for older people and for their families. In today's episode, we'll be talking with my UCSF colleague, John Newman, MD, PhD, who is not only a practicing geriatrician, but is also a research scientist studying aging and longevity. He is an assistant professor both at UCSF and also at the Buck Institute for Research on Aging, where he runs a lab and has been researching how ketones and certain diets affect aging mice. He is also very interested in how we might clinically study interventions that can affect aging and age-related declines in humans. As someone who works both as a clinical geriatrician seeing patients and as a basic scientist studying how metabolism and other factors affect the aging and function of our cells and organs, Dr. Newman brings a really unique perspective and knowledge base to his work. He's essentially working to improve the health of older adults by understanding and leveraging really interesting and exciting new research on the biology of aging. So I've been interested in his work for quite a while, and I know him through UCSF, and I'm just so delighted to have him on the podcast today to talk to us about some recent advances in how scientists such as himself think about aging and age-related declines, and also to talk about the work that he has been doing on ketones and memory. John, welcome to the show. Thanks, Leslie. I'm delighted to be here. I think we're going to have a lot of fun talking. Yes. The work you do is just so interesting. So I thought we might start just with a little bit about you. You are a geriatrician, and I've talked about geriatrics a lot on my site and podcast. We're medical doctors who have done additional training specific in the health problems of older adults, but you're also a geroscientist. And that's a term that uh, certainly wasn't as familiar to me, and I think the audience might not really understand what that is. So can you start by telling us what exactly is geroscience, and how did you become interested in this? So for all your listeners, I'm a geriatrician, just like Leslie. Uh, Leslie did a great job describing what a geriatrician does. So I, I care for older adults, especially in the hospital, and want to figure out better ways to keep them healthy and keep them independent in my case, and particularly as they face health problems in the hospital. But I have this other hat too. So I actually spend most of my time doing basic science research around the mechanisms of aging. And geriatrics, I think, is entering a really, uh, a really interesting stage in that we're learning more and more about the kind of cellular and molecular details of how we age and why we age. Uh, and we're just starting to get to the point where we can start to apply that knowledge to clinical care. And this is what geroscience is. So geroscience is the application of the biology of aging and the basic mechanisms that drive aging to clinical problems, to clinical diseases, uh, and to help improve the health and independence of older adults. It's what we call translational science, bringing okay. the, uh, the advances from the bench to the bedside. Well, so can you talk about that a little bit more? Because one term you just mentioned was aging biology research. And then there's geroscience, and, and they're both kind of 
you know, what we might call basic sciences. They're not done uh, in the hospital or quite with patients, but can you tell us a little bit how those two are related and how they're different and maybe an example of what would be aging biology research versus geroscience? So what, what might be news to some of your listeners is that, you know, we're, we've learned as a field more and more in the last few decades about how and why we age, that it's, it's a process that we can study and we can understand. Uh, it's a process that involves molecules and, and cells, just like every other process in our bodies. And it's a process that every organism goes through. You know, everything ages, everything from yeast cells and worms up to, uh, up to people. And so there's, there's a biology behind aging, an organized biology that we can understand. So aging biology broadly is, is trying, to, trying to understand those molecular details of why organisms age, what happens to the cells, what happens to the molecules. And it turns out that very often those cells, those molecules that, that define how, say, a worm ages turn out to be pretty similar to cells and molecules in people too. So we study aging in the laboratory in a lot of different ways in a, in a basic level. But then how do we make that relevant to human health? How can we, how can we use that knowledge uh, to treat disease uh, to, or to improve the care of people? Uh, and that's geroscience. So geroscience is taking this very basic understanding of, of why living things age and how they age and figuring out how to apply it to human disease and human clinical problems. Mm, okay. That's great. And so how did you come to be doing this? Because most of us geriatricians in the UCSF Division of Geriatrics and elsewhere do not have this basic science background and are not geroscientists. So how did you, how did you become interested in geroscience and become someone who is both a geriatrician and a geroscientist? I'm actually also wondering which one came first for you. Well, I, I have to admit I was a scientist or I knew I wanted to be a scientist first. And the, the geriatrician part came later because, like a lot of us, I, f- I fell in love with geriatrics. Mm. Uh, but, but first, I was, I was excited by the, the science of aging biology. And so I, when, I was a, when I was a student, when I started medical school, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I knew I, was, I wanted to do some interesting science, and I thought I would hopefully like medicine too. When I got to grad school, so I did an MD-PhD, meaning a combined medical, medical degree and a PhD in basic science. And when I started doing the PhD, at the time, I had, I had no idea, like most people don't, that aging was something that scientists were studying. Mm. Um, you know, like, like a lot of people, I, I wasn't exposed to aging or geriatrics very much in the beginning of medical school and, and didn't even realize that aging was, aging was a thing that you could study. But in grad school, I, I happened to fall into um, a series of random coincidences. And this is when you hear people tell their, their story of how they wound up doing what they do in their career, it's often a series of chance events that lead us to what we're doing. Right. But I, I happened to work in a laboratory that for, was studying a very basic cellular process about how these, these tiny little RNAs in our cells that are involved in, in building proteins uh, how these tiny RNAs are are kind of folded up into the genome, and how they're transcribed, how they're how they're expressed. Very very biochemistry stuff, you know, very detailed, very basic. But my uh, my mentor, who is also a very uh, very classical biochemist, had learned that one of the that there was this uh, this human disease, this human disease that happened to be a premature aging disease, where for some reason that no one knew at the time, these little tiny RNA genes in our genome couldn't compact in the right way. 
Mm. And, and that was a mystery. You know, what in the world could this basic biochemistry, this RNA thing have to do with a premature aging disease? Mm-hmm. Um, and that was actually the problem I studied in grad school. But that got me, that was my first time I, I was exposed to the idea that there is such a thing as a premature aging disease, a genetic disease that looks like early aging. And that was my entrepot into this whole world of aging biology. Um, I wound up meeting people who study aging in yeast and who study aging in worms and flies and, and learned a little bit about, about this whole field. Um, and it's fascinating. So I decided I wanted to, so I, so I have to admit the science came first. I decided that was a really, really interesting area of science to focus on. And I wanted to, to do that for my career. And then when I went back to medical school to, f- to finish my last two years of medical school, where we learn about, we do clinical rotations and, and actually do hands-on learning how to take care of people. Uh, and I fell in love with geriatrics. Uh, I just, I loved, I loved internal medicine. I loved caring for the older people. It was, it was so complex and challenging and yet rewarding. Um, and I had some fantastic geriatrician mentors who I wanted to be like. Uh, and so you know, you fall in love and you fall in love. And I just decided that was what I wanted to do. I wanted to be a geriatrician and I wanted to study aging biology and figure out how to put them together eventually. And do you think your interest already in the kind of aging biology helped foster your interest in geriatrics? I mean, were you thinking about the basic science background for these problems you were seeing in the hospital or? Yeah, in a couple of senses. So, so first it was it seemed a little crazy to me that there was this this huge, exciting, interesting field of biology about aging biology that we didn't really know how to apply to people. You know, which is which is unusual. You know, you think about oncology or or you know the cancer care, and there's a really direct link between what people study in the laboratory for cancer cells and then and how that affects people's lives in in, in the clinical care of cancer. But there wasn't that connection with between aging biology and the care of older adults. And that seemed like a mystery to me at the time. And that's something that I'm, I'm now devoting my career to try to make that connection. Mm-hmm. Right. So it sounds like a lot of the aging biology research is, is not done in, in humans. I guess, first of all, that we live a long time and it's probably more convenient to do it in organisms that live a shorter lifespan so you can see how they're aging. Well, that's exactly right. Everyone, so in studying any sort of medical problem, you want to study, you want to study in the laboratory in a way that you can, uh, you can generate knowledge uh, as efficiently and quickly as you can, but in a way that you hope will be will be translatable to people that will make sense in people too. So in aging biology, there's a lot of a lot of people study models that are much shorter lived, uh, where you can do experiments in days or even weeks. And of course, you know humans live a lot longer. But it turns out that a lot of the mechanisms that we study in in yeast and flies and worms and, and mice and things like that turn out to be very directly related to what's happening in people too. Mm, that's so interesting. Well, I want to keep moving forward so you can give us a few specific examples because I know that older adults and families, and I mean, I think we all become kind of interested in our own aging, which many of us start noticing. Um, well, I'm in my early 40s. I certainly started noticing it in my 30s. <laughs> you, know, mm-hmm. you just notice that your your, your body is changing in certain ways. And so I think we're, we're definitely going to want to hear some more specifics about what you and your colleagues have learned. Before we go into that, just really briefly, uh, I came across something when I was preparing for our talk called the geroscience hypothesis. Can you just summarize what that is? Because I thought it was really interesting. Yeah. So the geroscience hypothesis is a, it's a really simple idea uh, that is, is really exciting and could be groundbreaking. So it's, it's based in the 
so you, like you were just saying, as we all get older, we realize that, you know, we start to, things start to go wrong. You know, we start to not be able to do the things we used to as well. Um, eventually we start to get chronic diseases of aging and all of that is connected to aging. You know, it, aging is the major risk factor for many of the most serious and common diseases that people deal with. You think about Alzheimer's disease, cardiovascular disease, heart disease, kidney disease, osteoporosis, uh, osteoarthritis, all of these things, aging is the major risk factor. They are age-related diseases. And that, that can seem really obvious. Of course, they're age-related diseases. But what does that mean? But there's a biology behind that. Why are they age-related diseases? Because they're, they're an interaction of, of particular problems that are related to that disease, like osteoporosis or osteoarthritis, interacting with the aging person. So the aging person, in a sense, allows those diseases to happen. Mm-hmm. So right. maybe, and this is the really simple but groundbreaking idea, and it's not, it's not mine. People much smarter than me uh, came up with this hypothesis, that if you can understand aging and if you can target uh, with therapeutics the mechanisms that drive aging, maybe you can treat not just one disease, but maybe you can treat or slow a whole bunch of things at once. Mm-hmm. So instead of treating diabetes and then getting heart disease, maybe you can delay both diabetes and heart disease by targeting the underlying mechanisms of aging that can push both of them. Right. So that's the geroscience hypothesis. Yeah, yeah. So uh, to recap, uh, the geroscience hypothesis is that therapies that target mechanisms of aging should be able to prevent, delay, or treat a wide range of age-related diseases and conditions. And I thought that was so interesting because I think that gets at the heart of something that that many people kind of grapple with, which is the distinction between aging and disease, mm-hmm. right? Because on one hand, I think we intuitively think of aging as, you know, normal, a normal process. You were telling us that at a biological level, all organisms age. And especially as health professionals, we think about diseases. And so how do you kind of tease them apart? Or what is the relationship between aging and disease? Yeah. And that- and the funny thing is we often, as health professionals, we often, unless you're a geriatrician or, or, a, or someone else who specializes in caring for older adults, we don't think about aging. We're not always taught about aging. When I was in med school, um, you know, all we learned about was something was either normal or it was a disease. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and the idea of, of aging, we didn't even hear about it. And so I like to tell medical students now that aging is, aging is the second axis. So if you think about you know, a graph of, of normal versus disease, uh, you can draw a straight line between them. But then aging is running perpendicular to that. And aging happens, aging happens inevitably to all of us. It's not bad. It's a normal process. Um, it can contribute to z- diseases. It can also contribute to how diseases affect us. Aging can affect our resilience in other parts of our body, how well we can cope with a problem with a disease that emerges. So aging is not a disease. Aging is a normal process. It's not all bad. Some aspects of aging are are good. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, older adults famously are are the happiest of all people. Right. Uh, and and even if you think about specific things like changes in the brain with aging, you know, there are some things that get worse, but some things that get better. So aging is not a bad thing, and aging is not a disease. But it's it can be a risk factor for disease. Some of the changes that happen with aging can allow diseases to to pr- to present or can increase the odds that that a disease will happen. So I think of aging and disease as, as separate things, but they but they do interact. 
And this is where the geroscience hypothesis comes in, that if we can understand those interactions, how does aging contribute to, for example, cardiovascular disease, um, then maybe we can more effectively prevent and treat something like cardiovascular disease along with other things too. Right, right. Um, well, I want to come back to you know some of the the common problems that we see in older adults um, as geriatricians, what we refer to sometimes as geriatric syndromes, falls, memory problems, delirium in the hospital. I know you've worked on that too. But before we go to those, maybe we can dig into some of the basic science and have you explain some of it to us. So can you tell us a little bit more, you know, you've been saying how aging is this normal process. At the kind of aging biology level and geroscience level where you're working, what does, what are hallmarks of aging within the body, within the cells and the, the organs? And maybe I can maybe I'll illustrate a bit how we, how we found some of these things and yeah. how we know that they're uh, related to people and that they happen in people too. So the key point is that aging is biology. You know, as we age, things change in our, in our cells or molecules. Uh, it's aging is the changes that we perceive as aging are driven by specific molecular processes that we, we can understand and we've now categorized. And you can, the, the real kind of mind bender is that once you've understood what these mechanisms are, you can change them. Mm, in the laboratory, mm -hmm. you can change them through genetics or you can change them through, through other treatments and, and change the presentation, the phenotype of aging. So what are some of these uh, mechanisms? I remember in one of your presentations that I witnessed, you had some kind of circle with, I think, eight mm -hmm. kind of cellular hallmarks of, of aging. Can you tell us about those? Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think of them as, as being into, into three categories. Um, so part of aging is that, is that we accumulate damage. It's just, it's entropy. You know, we live life uh, and stuff happens to us. So sort of like the way that your car, you know, gradually accumulates rust. Mm -hmm. um, so we get damage. Our, uh, we get damage to our, our DNA, uh, mm -hmm. damage to our proteins. Proteins misfold uh, and glom together. We get damage to our, to our lipids, to our fats in our cells. Some of this is related to mitochondria. Uh, as we generate energy, uh, inevitably, there's a little bit of damage that goes with that as a byproduct. Uh, so part of aging is just this random accumulation of damage. Mm -hmm. But another part of aging is how our cells respond to that damage. Mm. So all of our cells, and this is true of every organism, have really intricate pathways to sense uh, and repair uh, all of this damage that can happen. And it turns out that so, so specific enzymes that remove, remove damage from DNA, that remove damage from proteins, that are designed to help proteins fold the right way, to unfold them and refold them if they, if they go wrong, to recycle mitochondria, to recycle proteins. And it turns out that uh, a lot of the difference in lifespan and age that you see in the laboratory has less to do with, you know, the the uh, the rate at which damage happens, but it's more to do with how how the organism or the cell responds to that damage. Mm, mm -hmm. um, so there's damage. There's our response to damage, and, and then the third element, uh, which has led to some of the exciting potential drug therapies or that the damage can sometimes lead to, lead to kind of other problems in a sort of feedback loop. So the damage causes a problem and the problem then causes more damage. So what are some examples of that? Uh, so we have stem, our body has stem cells, cells whose job is to continually divide and renew themselves to create new cells. Mm -hmm. um, but as those stem cells accumulate damage, they stop working as well uh, and they have a harder time replenishing other cells. So loss of stem cells is an example of a, a kind of second order effect of damage or an epiphenomenon 
Another example that's uh, really hot right now is the idea of a senescent cell. So if a cell is damaged enough, but not so much that it becomes a cancer cell, it'll stop dividing. It senses the damage, it knows it's going down the wrong path, and it shuts itself down. Uh, it goes mm -hmm. senescent. Mm -hmm. So we, we accumulate senescent cells as we age. Mm -hmm. But it turns out that senescent cells, so this is, this is a way that our bodies can prevent cancer. Um, so that's a good thing. But it turns out that senescent cells aren't totally shut down. They're sort of like zombie cells. Uh, mm. They actually release all of these inflammatory molecules um, that probably are meant to tell the body, you know, hey, I'm, I'm damaged. You need to come clean me up and get rid of me. But if, but if they stay there and they keep releasing these inflammatory molecules, um, it leads to inflammation in that tissue around it and can lead to inflammation in the whole body. Mm. So that can actually accelerate damage in other cells. Right, so you get right. this feedback loop of damage creates senescent cells, senescent cells create more damage, and you accelerate your aging. Right. Um, so I've come across the term, you know, inflammaging, that aging in of itself brings on in many people at some point this low-grade inflammatory state. Is, is that in part due to this uh, cellular senescence, or do we know? Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, so it turns out that senescence seems to be an important driver of this abnormal inflammation um, in a number of different tissues in the body. And this, this is a very kind of cutting edge area of, of investigation in, in the laboratory and research, understanding exactly how, how much senescent cells contribute to, for example, uh, inflammation in the brain that might contribute to dementia or inflammation in adipose tissue and fat tissue uh, that might contribute to, uh, to diabetes or to inflammation in the blood vessels that might contribute to cardiovascular disease. Right, right. Well, um, well I know that in, you know, in clinical geriatrics, one of our guiding, uh, I don't know if I would say it's principles, but that often we find that uh, any problem somebody, an older person is having is multifactorial, that there's mm -hmm. not usually one single cause Absolutely. for it. It's usually a combination of things together that are you know, either causing it or decreasing the person's resilience or increasing their vulnerability mm -hmm. um, to it. And so it sounds like many of these, you know, at the uh, cellular biological level, you know, the increased inflammation that that also is multifactorial and might be cellular senescence along with some of these um, other changes brought on either by aging or, or maybe by diseases. Yeah, you're absolutely right, Leslie. And and that, that idea of multiple causes. So mm. this is so familiar to geriatricians and I think to older people too. I think people intuitively understand that it's, it's not just one little thing, one single thing um, that's causing a big problem like having trouble walking or causing a fall. But this is a different way of thinking than most, most scientists have because uh, most scientists are more comfortable with the idea that one thing causes another thing causes another thing in a very narrow, discrete one, two, three kind of pathway. Mm -hmm. But we know that older people are more complicated than that. And we need to, we need to embrace that in order to effectively care for older people. Mm -hmm. um, I think there's a scientific analog of that too, that this, this is how aging works at the biological level too. Uh, it is inherently multifactorial. Right. Um, inherently, there's different things going on at the same time. Uh, like there's not one thing that makes a cell senescent, but it's a few different things that together make a cell senescent. It's not one thing that leads to a stem cell not being able to continue to divide, but a few different things, both inside that cell and in its environment. And all together, they make that stem cell not able to work anymore. Right. Um, so I, I think that geriatrics is is helping to, uh, is kind of helping aging biologists to understand how to think about 
aging biology in that kind of comprehensive multifactorial way. Right. And it also means that a, a treatment or management plan probably has to be multifactorial too. I mean, you didn't, you didn't mention them, but I think uh, I've heard of them. And I think many people, you know, the public has sometimes heard of uh, telomeres, right? Those little kind of caps on the end of your, your DNA, they say, that, uh, that gets shorter. You know, that, that's only one factor. So you can't just sort of stop them from, from shrinking. You probably need to do other things as well, or that maybe there are multiple things that are contributing to, uh, to their length. Yeah, this is this is a key thing that we're learning, uh, even in the laboratory. Uh, but then it's it's true in people too. You know, we don't age for one reason. There's not one single thing driving it. There's not, you know, one one pathway or one problem uh, that is aging. Aging is a combination of of you know several of these of these things all working together, uh, and to different extents in different people. So, for example, I think we analogy I like to use is a deck of cards. You know, we, we all age from the same deck of cards, the same, the same set of things that aren't working as well. And, you know, some of them I, I mentioned earlier about DNA repair or refolding proteins or mitochondrial function or stem cell function. We all mm -hmm. age from the same deck, but we all draw a different set of cards from that deck. Mm. Um, and mm -hmm. so thinking about, as, as we kind of think about how to translate this knowledge into therapies, um, I think we realize that uh, you know, there's not going to be one, one magic drug for aging. It's going to be a matter of understanding how an individual is aging personally uh, and in different parts of their bodies and what's, what's the clinical context, uh, uh, what, uh, what parts of aging are most affecting their goals or what, they, what they're trying to recover from or what they're trying to do better and figuring out targeted therapies that help uh, those, those uh, aging pathways that are most important to that person in that context. Right, right. So actually, you mentioned earlier that, you know, so everybody kind of draws from the deck differently, but also it's very obvious, I think, to all of us looking around that people seem to be aging at different paces, right? Mm -hmm. With some people, you know, the same 60-year-old uh, person or the same. If you had a group of six-year-olds, some of them might look noticeably older than, than others, and not just cosmetically, but in terms of the, you know, the kind of the speed they're moving at, or, or we, uh, I think we all have an internal sense of how old somebody looks. So I assume that's because, you know, internally people's cells and organs aren't all aging at the same rate. Can you talk a little bit about that idea, kind of chronological age versus a different measure of age? And, you know, why does it happen differently for different people? And how do you as scientists kind of determine what somebody's internal age is like? Yeah, this, this is so important. Age, age really is a number, uh, or sorry, age is not a number. It is not just a number. And like you were saying, Leslie, I think we all see this in our day-to-day -day experience that we'll see people who are the same, the same number age, the same number of years on, on this planet. Born the same year, we'll say. Born the same year, but who look very different and act very different. Uh, and the, the act very different is really important. Uh, we see this in the hospital where you, know, you might have a really, a really old appearing, uh, physiologically old 65-year-old who you're really worried about having that surgery and about their risk of complications and whether they'll be able to walk again afterwards. Uh, and maybe you have a really young 90-year-old who was playing tennis last week uh, and who you're, uh, you know, you're not as worried about complications about, and about recovering from the surgery. Mm -hmm. uh, so we all age at, in different ways and at different paces. And there, there are a bunch of things that can affect that from person to person. One of the arts and sciences of being a geriatrician is trying to trying to understand that and, and in a sense, measure that 
uh, in the person sitting in front of you so that you know sort of how to how to customize their medical care to uh, to meet their their not their chronological age but their physiological age so we we, we definitely talk about uh, as geriatricians we talk about this uh, you know ages age is how you function uh, ages uh, age is not not just how old you are and what geriatricians have learned is that how you function uh, is more important for predicting how you'll do uh, if you're facing a disease, if you're facing a hospitalization, for example, how you function is more important for predicting how you'll do than how old you are, how many how many years you've been here, mm-hmm. in your chronological age. And there's a biology to that too. You know, we can. This is sort of understanding what the bio, well, understanding how the the biology of aging is then different in in two people who are the same chronological age but very different physiological ages. Uh, is one of the the cutting edge areas of research. Mm-hmm. Um, so, do you have sort of within aging biology or in geroscience, do you have uh, kind of internal markers of of uh, how physiologically aged a person is? So, certainly, as you mentioned, we clinically, you know, have some metrics we look at people's ability to manage their their daily life activities, whether they're having any difficulty often with their memory. You know, we have some some other more objective things, how, how tightly they can squeeze their grip strength, mm-hmm. how fast they can walk. But these are all kind of fairly external and obvious. So within, uh, for your colleagues, are there things that you've started looking at internally that can create a reflection of the, the cellular age or those cellular processes you were mentioning that accumulate as people age? So you're asking about biomarkers of aging, which is a, a huge field right now. Uh, the short answer is that people are working on it. There's still nothing that's as good as those those very simple, obvious things you mentioned. Mm, that's uh, so if interesting. If you want to know how how old someone is from the perspective of how well they'll do after a surgery, you want to watch them walk, and you mm. want to check their grip strength, and you want to ask if they take care of their daily activities by themselves or not. But we're trying to figure out how to add biology to that. There are a few approaches that are starting to percolate up from the laboratory, which uh, which look like they could be promising. And the uh, the first thing that people always try to do is, can you use a a biological test, a blood test, uh, to guess someone's age? Which is, you know, sort of a parlor trick. If you want to know someone's age, just ask them or right. you know, look at the calendar. <laughs> um, and that's their age as in the year they were born. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. So, you know, that's, that's the first step. But the second step then is, do these sorts of markers of, of aging actually actually help to tell you is someone more old or, 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 or someone older or someone younger for their chronological age? How do they, how is their physiology like? Um, and we're working on that. So, so a few things that people uh, might hear about, uh, telomeres mm-hmm. have been out there for a while. Telomeres are one way to make a guess at your chronological age. Uh, and there's um, a whole lot of, uh, there've been a whole lot of studies out there associating telomere lengths with, with, with other things like risk for certain diseases. Another item people might hear about is the epigenetic clock. This is looking at the, uh, looking at markers that are on the DNA of your white blood cells, uh, epigenetic markers. And it turns out that that can be pretty good at predicting someone's chronological age, you know, the parlor trick of, of guess how old I am. And the, what people are now studying is there's, there's always a spread you know, if you do, uh, if you take the epigenetic clock of a bunch of 80-year-olds, or a bunch of 60-year-olds, or 40-year-olds, uh, you'll see a spread of you know plus or minus five or 10 years around that. And so the question is, do the people who look younger on the epigenetic clock, do they actually act younger in the sense of you know risk for a disease or risk of dying uh, or 
uh, being able to get through a surgery. And that's what people are studying now. And then there's also uh, uh, some folks who are looking at inflammatory proteins, like you were talking about earlier, this inflammaging idea. So can you look at a panel of inflammatory markers in the blood and, and guess how old someone is? And then not just guess how old they are, but then how, how old they will act. Uh, so these are some exciting things that are, are coming through the pipeline, but we really we don't know yet how to use them uh, in a clinical way that adds to the value that that's better than the sort of you know really obvious simple things you talked about earlier, like watching someone walk. Uh, but mm-hmm. they're coming. Right, right. So those uh, I think it was a few years ago there used to be this you know these ads everywhere. Find out your real age. <laughs> so it sounds like those are maybe uh, gesturing towards some of this exciting research, but that none of it's ready for prime time or, or really validated at this point? Yeah, I'd say that the uh, validating these biomarkers in clinical contexts is the cutting edge right now. And, mm-hmm. and some of those studies are, are going on now, but we don't yet know, you know, we can't say that someone with a better epigenetic age, for example, is going to recover better from, uh, from a hip replacement. You know, I, I, I look forward to, I, I would love to be able to... Or is going to live longer. Or who's going to live longer. That's a much longer study to do. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And then in terms of why some people age more quickly and others less quickly, I know it's a, uh, you know, a topic of, of lots of research, but we always hear about certain, you know, certain things are just good for the health, like exercise and other lifestyle behaviors. What are the sort of factors that, you know, are considered most promising right now for leading people to age less quickly physiologically? Yeah. And maybe I'll, I'll tell you a little bit about what we know in people and then what we know in the laboratory which are a little bit different. And then what you're doing in your laboratory. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, tell us. What affects who ages faster or slower, so to speak, uh, among people? Well, we know that a good chunk of that is genetics. Not all of it, though, and probably less than some people would think. Um, so genetics probably explains about a quarter of uh, how long someone's going to live or, or you know, how fast they'll age. So a quarter is not nothing, but it's not the whole story. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of the rest of that is about your environment. Over the last 150 years, you know, as we've lived in, in, in a, uh, a more comfortable environment in the developed world uh, and not having to worry so much about uh, where food is coming from, about having clean water and sewers and cleaner air and things like that, uh, you know, we're living longer. So some of that is environment. You know, the, the reality is that in many countries, including the United States, one of the best predictors of how long someone will live is the uh, the wealth or the income of the place where they grew up and live, uh, or the wealth and income of their parents and of themselves. So there's a uh, there's a strong uh, economic, uh, socioeconomic uh, factor too, uh, along with the genetics and the environment. In in the laboratory, we can be a lot more specific because we can uh, we can manipulate things, and then we can see what happens uh, to an organism's lifespan and and their health. Um, so there's a lot of data from the laboratory about about ways that you can, well, that you can slow aging in the laboratory and make something live longer in the laboratory. A lot of them have to do with metabolism. Mm. Um, so the, in some ways, the foundation of the field of aging biology goes back almost 100 years now to the first time that uh, someone did an experiment where they fed rats less food. Not enough to starve them, but they just fed them less. Um, and observe that they live longer. So that's the that's the idea of uh, dietary restriction. That in the laboratory, uh, if you if you eat less food, up to a certain point, you know you can't overdo it, or you or you actually will starve something. But if you eat less, 
that animal will live longer. And it turns out that this this is true in yeast, in flies, in worms, uh, in in mice, and even in primates, uh, in monkeys. It's not always true. It depends on the genetics of the of that particular organism. But still, in general, in general, eating less uh, is one of the surest ways in the laboratory to make things live longer. Now, why is that? This is the exciting part. It turns out it's not the eating less that's important. A little while ago, we talked about damage and the response to damage, mm-hmm. and these being important for for creating what we see as aging. Well, it turns out that eating less is sort of a, a sledgehammer way to turn on uh, damage repair pathways. Oh, interesting. It's a very it's a it's a blunt instrument, and in certain animals or in certain genetic backgrounds, it it turns out to be counterproductive. But in general. Um, you know, very broadly, eating less is a way to turn on these repair pathways. And you can you can turn on those same pathways not by eating less, but by just turning them on directly, either through drugs or by genes. So the very first gene that was found to regulate aging uh, was found, well, one of the very first genes uh, was found here at UCSF uh, by Cynthia Canyon in the little worm. So worms are a popular model for studying biology. They only live a couple of weeks. You can actually count the number of cells in them, and you you can follow each cell as the worm grows up. So they're they're great organisms for studying biology. Uh, She found a gene where if she changed just this one gene and actually just one DNA base in the gene, uh, the worms lived almost twice as long. It turned out she then found a bunch of other genes uh, that that interact with that gene in worms, uh, so she constructed a whole pathway of worm genes that regulate how long a worm lives. So guess what that gene turned out to be and what that pathway turned out to be? What? It was the worm version of the insulin receptor and insulin signaling. Oh, <laughs> okay. So worm, worms don't have insulin. They, have, they actually have a hormone that's a combination of our insulin and our insulin-like growth factor. So these are hormones that help us to process sugar. Um, and also help to control our growth as we get older. So, you know, every every gene in that pathway controls how long a worm lives. And of course, these are we have versions of these too. Uh, we know they're important for diseases like diabetes. And a a group at uh, Albert Einstein who studies uh, the genetics of centenarians, so people who make it to 100 in, in great shape, have found that uh, many of them have some kind of difference, some kind of genetic difference in this IGF insulin-like growth factor pathway, uh, which might be helping them get to 100. So it turns out that the worm genetics are really similar maybe to the human genetics. That's so interesting. Um, And all of this is related to how our body responds to nutrition and turns on uh, repair pathways in response to that. Yeah, no, I wanted to ask about nutrition because earlier when you were talking about what affects longevity in people, you mentioned genetics and environment and your income growing up, which is really a proxy for, I think, all kinds of things related to both your physical environment and, you know, your social environment as a a child. And we know that stress kind of affects the way your body is programmed. But you didn't mention anything that people can control more directly later in life, you know, their lifestyle, like what they eat, how they sleep, how they exercise. But now you're, you're, we're, we are kind of coming back to some, uh, some nutrition things. So, well, very briefly, before we get into your research on metabolism, are there any particular lifestyle factors that they think are related to longevity broadly? Or it's kind of too broad to be useful? We know exercise is generally good. Yeah, well, I think we can say some things broadly which are also useful. Mm-hmm. Um, exercise is always good. 
good advice is if you ask your doctor, you know, how much should I be exercising? How much should I be moving? The answer is always a little more than you are now. Right. <laughs> uh, no matter how old you are, no matter what shape you're in, exercise is exercise is the best, the closest thing we have to a magic pill for aging. Mm-hmm. It helps to keep you fit. It keeps you metabolically fit. It helps you maintain your muscle strength as you get older to avoid frailty and to stay mobile. Um, exercise is one of the best things you can do for your health. And it does influence a lot of these cellular processes you were mentioning earlier, as far as I know. Yeah, yeah, exactly. A, a lot of a lot of the very detailed cellular processes that we study in aging and, and things like the mitochondrial function and um, and protein repair and, and DNA repair. In, in the laboratory, exercise and eating less are the ways to activate these things. Um, now, is that true in people? Probably. Uh, and we have, there's some... We have some data to suggest that that's the case, that people will act, people, uh, that these things work the same in people as they do in the laboratory. We certainly know that exercise is good for health in people. Uh, and you can see this in, in you know, clinical trials of exercise oh, yeah. uh, that can help to prevent diabetes, that can help to maintain people's independence. Right. Uh, the question of eating less is a little more complicated. I'd say- And of what to eat. There's just so much- um... Oh, sure. Yeah. So much going on about that right now. People debating what they should be, be eating. And it's a very you know, popular topic for articles online, mm-hmm. you know, brain healthy foods, longevity foods, heart mm-hmm. healthy foods. But we don't have to dig way into that right now because uh, I really want you to spend a little time telling us about the research you've been doing in your lab. Your lab has a great motto, harnessing metabolic signals to treat geriatric syndromes of aging. Mm-hmm. And you've been studying ketones and ketogenic diets. Yeah. And not because they're super popular, I think, among the public, or maybe that is part of it, but tell us about the work you've been doing and what you've found so far. I'd like to think I started studying them before they were popular. Yes, I think uh, you probably but, did. But yes, the keto diet seems to be the rage right now. <laughs> but maybe briefly tell us what ketones are for you know people in the audience who may not be familiar. And then, yeah, tell us what you've been studying and what you found. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, what is a metabolic signal? This sounds kind of kind of weird, but hopefully interesting. So we were just talking about how you know, the way that your body or your cells sense nutrition, sense if there's a lot of nutrition around or not so much, and what kind of nutrition, and then they make decisions about turning on repair pathways. So I I, I kind of think about this very broadly as if your cells sense there's a lot of food and a lot of nutrients around, they want to they want to grow and get bigger. If they sense that there's not a lot of food around, not a lot of nutrition, uh, they they want to hunker down and repair themselves and kind of turn inward. Um, so both of these are important for life, right? You you need to grow, uh, but you also want to maintain yourself. And that that kind of uh, that kind of choice, you can see cells and organisms doing that. Uh, you know, again, everything from yeast and flies and worms up to people. So how do cells make that decision? How do they know how much food is around? Well, one of the themes. That's, that's emerged from the science is that the same molecules that process energy also sense it. So your cells have a, a hugely sophisticated, complicated machinery for taking what you eat and turning it into energy, energy okay. that the cell can burn to do things like move a muscle. Right. Those same molecules, as they're, as they're p- participating in the process of making energy, they're also sensing how much energy there is. Uh, and then many of these molecules have have sort of secret lives uh, of then deciding whether to turn on or turn off these repair and regeneration pathways. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, yeah. So they're doing two things. Uh, and ketone bodies, we're realizing, are an example of this sort of signaling metabolite. So what are ketone bodies? So ketone bodies are molecules that your own body will make in your liver as a way of turning fat into energy. Mm -hmm. So if, you're, if you don't eat for a while, if, you, uh, if you're fasting overnight for your blood test, uh, or if you go and run a marathon, eventually your body will start to use your fat reserves for energy. And it does that by moving the fat to your liver where it's turned into ketone bodies. And then the ketone bodies are used for energy by your heart and your muscles and your brain and whatnot. Right. And I, I think the relationship to the ketogenic diet, right, is that um, your body's much more likely to do that when it's low on, uh, on glucose. And, and glucose easily comes from eating carbs. Is that right? Exactly. So a ketogenic diet is a way to, to sort of force your body to make ketone bodies even when you're not fasting, even when there's a lot of calories around. Because uh, uh, they're also how your body, if there's not a lot of sugar in your diet, ketone bodies are how your body will take the fat that you're eating uh, and turn it into energy that your, the rest of your body can use. So a ketogenic diet is, is just a diet that is very low in carbohydrates, has a lot of fat, and your body is forced to, to use that fat for its energy, uh, mostly in the form of ketone bodies. Because if you eat carbohydrates, otherwise your, your body absorbs them and they become glucose in your bloodstream, which is fairly easy for your body's cells to, to use most of the time, right? Exactly. And if there's a lot of glucose around, your body doesn't need ketone bodies, so it doesn't make them. Mm -hmm. Right. And I imagine glucose probably also signals your cells to do all kinds of, uh, and organs to do all kinds of things. Yeah. And so this is exactly what's, uh, what makes ketone bodies signaling metabolites. So, so glucose, in a lot of ways, is a signal too. It's a signal to your cells that there's a lot of food around, plenty of nutrition. Maybe um, we should make fat cells. Yeah, let's make yeah. fat cells and let's not worry about repairing DNA. Right. Let's uh, stock it up because maybe later we won't have all this food. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, whereas ketone bodies, if ketone bodies are around, uh, your body knows that it's, it might be starving. You know, it might uh, not have nutrition. And so ketone bodies, uh, we're learning now, have uh, helped to turn on some of the same repair pathways that fasting does. Mm. Um, in a way, ketone bodies help to signal the fasting state to your body. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, so those are ketone bodies. And so then what was the question you, you studied related to them and, and what did you find? Yeah. So the question was, if, if when you're fasting, you make ketone bodies, if you're eating less food, you make ketone bodies. Uh, if you're exercising a lot, you make ketone bodies. Is that just a coincidence or do ketone bodies actually have a role in, in, uh, determining the health effects of these things. You know, are they are ketone bodies a bystander, or are they actually helping to, for example, generate the health benefits that you see in a laboratory from fasting? Mm -hmm. uh, so, one way to try to begin to answer that question is to see what happens if you, in the laboratory, put mice, for example, on a ketogenic diet for most of their life. So, mm -hmm. as a way to, so we know that for for certain strains of mice, if you feed them less food, they live longer dietary restriction. We didn't know what would happen with a ketogenic diet. So they have plenty of food, they just don't have very much sugar, and they're making ketone bodies all the time. So will that be similar to dietary restriction? And so I, I spent about five years doing an experiment, feeding lots of mice an experimental diet that was ketogenic with very low carbohydrates, and comparing it, trying to carefully compare it to other diets, a diet that was very low in carbohydrates, but not quite enough to make ketone bodies. Uh, and a normal diet, which for mice is very high in carbohydrates. And what happened? 
uh, and we found that the, you know, lo and behold, the mice that were eating the ketogenic diet for most of their life survived better into old age. Uh, they were less likely to, to die young, so to speak. They didn't live longer at the end of their life, but they, they sort of made it into old age in better shape. Hmm. So actually, they, so they didn't live that much longer, but they lived a larger part of their life kind of healthier with less noticeable age-related decline? Is that what? Yeah, exactly. It seemed to, it helped to increase their, their health span. Their health span. Wow. Well, that is what everybody is, um, so many people are, are interested in doing. And didn't you actually study specifically their memory as part of this? A whole bunch of things. Yeah. So, you know, lifespan is not the is not the be all end all and and as we're you know thinking about translating and testing things in people you know whether people live longer or not is going to be hard to study anyway and most people wouldn't be that interested in that unless they were also healthy right um, so we really want to figure out when we do experiments how can we see if we're actually making uh, animals healthier and not just live longer um, so how do you do that with a uh, with mice mm-hmm so we, we did all sorts of testing with them where they could show us how strong they were, how smart they were, how much endurance they had, how curious they were, and looking for things that, uh, that were different on the ketogenic diet. Uh, so, so mice, like humans, they change with age. You know, They slow down. Uh, they, they don't lose a lot of strength as they get older, but they do lose a bit of memory as they get older, mm-hmm. uh, and just, just from aging, not from you know, Alzheimer's disease or anything like that, just from aging. So testing all of those things, what really stood out was actually their memory, that when we tested memory in mice when they were old, uh, the mice that had been on the ketogenic diet for most of their life did better, had better memory uh, than mice that had eaten a normal diet for most of their life. Mm, wow. uh, so that's really exciting. That was a, an age-related change, an important one. You know, memory is an important thing Yeah. Uh, yeah. that this, this intervention seemed to help with. So has anything similar been studied in humans? Now, I, uh, you know, because people were talking about the ketogenic diet so much, I remember looking it up mm-hmm. uh, maybe a year or two ago and seeing that it had mostly been used to control epilepsy in children. Mm-hmm. But I think more recently, there's been some interest in it for Alzheimer's, and there's probably more research ongoing that I'm not, that I'm not aware of. But what do we know so far about ketogenic diets in, uh, in people and how that affects uh, brain function? Well, even before people, though, that for your listeners, when you hear about some some exciting new laboratory study, one of the first questions you should always ask is, uh, has it been replicated? Mm, um, good point. Or has someone else seen this too? And I had a actually a really nice, really nice experience where um, it turned out that there was a another laboratory doing a very similar study of ketogenic diet in aging mice. That's John Ramsey at University of California Davis. And we actually, we, we eventually realized that we were doing similar work and uh, wound up publishing our, our studies in the same journal at the same time. But his results were, were awfully similar to mine. Um, mm-hmm. They did their experiment just a little bit differently, just enough so that it was, you know, we could, we could kind of say that changing this little thing or that little thing didn't change the results too much. But he also found that the ketogenic diet in mice helped them live longer and helped their memory. So we're pretty sure this is a real thing in mice. Um, and the question is, the first question is why and what is it about the ketogenic diet that's doing this? Uh, and that's what I'm working on in the laboratory now. Can we understand, you know, what is what is the mechanism? What's actually happening in the brain on a ketogenic diet that's helpful? And that will then help, knowing that will then help us to figure out, can we translate this to people uh, in, in, a, in a thoughtful and, and practical way? So what do we know about ketogenic diet in, in people? Like you're saying, most of 
most of what ketogenic diets have been used for uh, for a long time uh, is to treat childhood epilepsies. And they can, they can work really well for that, especially when anti-epileptic drugs uh, don't work well enough. We don't know a whole lot about ketogenic diet in adults, uh, or especially in older adults. I think we, we know from randomized trials that they can, they can be effective for weight loss, or at least as effective as, as other diets. At least in the short term, it seems like it's hard for people to stay on them long term. It is. Uh, and, there, and there really haven't been long-term studies of it either, in part because it's hard for people to stay on it. Um, it really is a dramatic change in, your, in the way that you eat. Mm-hmm. And this is one reason why I think it's, it's important to you know, understand what part of the ketogenic diet is working, uh, for example, for memory or, or for other areas. So you can maybe turn that into a therapy that's a little bit easier to do right. uh, than a ketogenic diet. Yeah. So you can kind of tickle that pathway without necessarily you know, having people eat something that's a big change and difficult for years and years. Yeah. And so ketogenic diets are being, are being studied in a few different contexts. Um, there's a, a group at Wake Forest that's interested in studying the ketogenic diet in uh, early Alzheimer's disease. Um, there's a few groups around the country and the world that are studying ketogenic diets in diabetes, and in particular for trying to prevent diabetic complications. All of this, this is all kind of cutting edge though. I'd say that uh, using ketogenic diets uh, for to try to treat clinical disease in adults or older adults is is pretty cutting edge, and it's still people are still studying, you know, whether and how it works in different contexts. Right. Yeah. So the people who go and start doing it on their own because they're trying to treat themselves or someone else, and I think it's important to know that you know it hasn't it hasn't been proven that it works. <laughs> yeah, and, and so I'd say it's promising research, but we don't yet know. Yeah, we don't we don't yet know what really to expect. Um, but I will say one thing that I've I've come to learn from studying ketogenic diets is that it's it's also not something that a healthy person should be afraid of trying. Mm-hmm. It's hard for a lot of people to do, but if it, especially if you're if you're generally healthy, if you don't have diabetes, and certainly if you talk with your doctor first, uh, it's probably something not to be afraid of. And I think uh, in general, one thing that we're learning in the nutrition world is that. Uh, we shouldn't be as afraid of fats as we used to be. Mm. You know, fats are not necessarily the enemy, or at least not all fats. And especially when it comes to you know healthy plant-based, unsaturated fats, probably most of us could stand to have a little bit more of that in our mm-hmm. diet. Uh, but it's certainly not something to be afraid of. Right. And then I think for saturated fat, there's still a lot of uh, debate and back and forth. And then it seems to depend, you know, what was the animal fed, right? So, you know, the, uh, was the cow eating grass or grain? Cause that might affect what's in their fat. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's, you know, it seems to be quite, quite complicated right now, but really interesting to see us uh, learning more about this. So coming back to mice, so you found that the ketogenic diet seemed to improve their memory in the later part of their life. Do we know what else has been shown to improve memory or health span in mice? Yeah. So there's, uh, there's actually a growing list of things that work in mice. Um, at this point, almost as many things have been shown to uh, improve lifespan and health span in mice as have been shown to cure cancer in mice, mm. uh, which mm-hmm. is also a reason to remember that what happens in mice isn't always the same as what happens in people. Right. Yeah. As we, as we kind of learn what are the mechanisms that drive aging, it turns out as if you, man, you can manipulate most of them in the laboratory, and most of the time when you do that, you wind up with animals that live longer and are healthier. 
Um, so some examples of that, they're getting close to uh, or already in uh, clinical trials in humans. Two kind of broad categories of, of interventions that look pretty promising are metabolic interventions and interventions on senescent cells. Mm-hmm. So metabolic interventions in general are, are drugs that recapitulate some aspect of that that fasting metabolism that puts your cells into a repair mode. Um, so, you know, maybe ketone bodies might be an example of that down the line as we learn more. But some some drugs in that category that were that are already in human clinical trials. Uh, this is this is where metformin comes from in an aging context, and drugs that target the uh, the rapamycin pathway or right. TOR, target of rapamycin. And I just want to mention, you know, highlight metformin that you just mentioned because that's actually one of the uh, medications we've used for diabetes for the longest. It's usually the staple, uh, certainly when I was in medical school, we were taught that if someone had just been diagnosed with diabetes, you started them with metformin because it made their cells more insulin sensitive. Yeah. It's our first line for treating diabetes. It has been for for a long time now. Uh It's a really good drug. So why is it such a good drug for diabetes? Because it seems to do more than just control blood sugar. And that's uh, that's where this idea of metformin and aging started, when people realized that when you look at the large randomized controlled trials of metformin in people, that it yes, it works in diabetes and it lowers blood sugar. But you can also see hints in, in that human data that it might also uh, help in other areas too. It might help to maybe maybe slow the pace of cardiovascular disease, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, so yes. these are just hints from randomized data, but we right. also... So that's that's one end of the translational spectrum, so to speak. You look at human studies and what else does this drug seem to do? Right. At the molecular level, we eventually, so for a long time, we had no idea how metformin actually worked. It's still a little controversial. It seems to do several different things. But most of those things have to do with these, these cellular pathways that sense nutrition and turn on repair. So metformin acts on a couple things in particular in the mitochondria and affecting the levels of, of these signaling metabolites. And so this is part of the, the metabolic interventions that you were, you were mentioning. Yeah. So some people talk about metformin as a fasting mimetic in, in a way that it, it helps to trick your cells into thinking that it's in a, they're in a fasted state. So all of this together is why, why investigators around the U.S. are, are interested in trying to do a, a proper, large-scale, randomized controlled trial um, of seeing if metformin can affect diseases of aging, so to test the geroscience hypothesis. Mm-hmm. Um, and the idea here is that you'll take older adults who already have one chronic disease, and we know if they have one chronic disease, uh, they're at higher risk of getting another one, and another one, and another one. So you divide them into two groups. Half of them you treat with a placebo, and half of them you treat with uh, metformin. And you follow them for several years and see if the group that's taking metformin gets those gets that second and third chronic disease either later or not at all. Um, so this is this is called targeting targeting aging with metformin or the TAME study. Um, and uh, hopefully we'll be uh, the group that's designed it is is trying to to finalize a plan for uh, for funding it from a combination of philanthropy and the NIH, the National Institutes of Health. Um, and the hope is that that'll be underway soon. And that'll be the the first very large-scale study of trying to use a drug, in this case metformin, to affect aging, to affect, in this case, age-related chronic diseases. Yeah. Well, I think it's not 
you know, obvious to the audience and maybe not even to me, but when I think about it, it seems that most of the time when they set up a study and get approved, we usually focus on a disease outcome, right? Mm -hmm. And so that, you know, part of what's innovative or unusual about this is that the, the outcome is not a disease, it's aging, which, uh, or things related to aging and aging is not <laughs> a disease. Aging is not a disease. But we still want to study it as an outcome. Because it's, of course, so important in so many ways to health and life. Or you want to study, you want to figure out how to study outcomes that represent the, the, negative, the negative side of aging, the, ne the consequences of aging. Um, right. and, and yeah, and this is, this is not obvious. And this, this is why a clinical trial like TAME is so important to do. Uh, because let's say that you know, there's all this exciting biology going on about how to, how to, you know, how to affect aging in the laboratory. So what if you have a drug that you think affects aging? How do you test it in people? And it, and you don't necessarily want to just look at one disease because you think it'll affect several things at once. You really want to see if it works on aging as a whole. Um, and so one idea is to, instead of just looking at one disease, look at a basket of diseases, look at several chronic diseases together, which is what TAME is doing. Um, another idea is to study these uh, these geriatric syndromes that you talked about. So these are these are things that they're not they're not a single narrow silo disease, uh, but they're serious problems like falls or frailty um, that have multiple causes. They're sort of they're the visible side of aging, and so maybe you could see if a drug helps to prevent or treat geriatric syndromes. Mm -hmm. um, but one challenge is that the regulatory agencies like the FDA are traditionally very focused on single diseases. And so the, the, the folks who are designing the TAME study are working very closely with the FDA to try to negotiate with them, you know, what, what, would, what might this look like? Right. Uh, you know, if we... Uh, yeah, because we need a different paradigm, really, for the study and for the way yeah. we, we mm -hmm. study interventions in relation to human health. Yeah. And, you know, it's not even necessarily a different paradigm. It's just it's one that most researchers don't... Uh, most researchers don't really know about, um, but as a, from the perspective of a geriatrician, you know, I find this really interesting because what are the outcomes that geriatricians and our patients are most interested in? It's these kind of big picture, big picture things that affect someone's life. You know, how well right. can they walk? Can they live independently? You know, how many medicines do they take? Uh, you know, it, major things that are really impactful to their life, uh, and we actually use these in our own geriatric clinical studies as the outcomes that we're measuring. Yep. Uh, you know, many geriatric clinical studies use independence as an outcome. We want to keep people independent in their own homes, uh, but you can't really do that yet with a drug. Mm -hmm. So that, so this is a process of, you know, working with the FDA to figure out, could you use an outcome like this that is really important to people and broadly represents aging as an indication for a drug. Right. And oh, it's so interesting. And so earlier when we were talking about, you know, what has improved uh, outcomes in mice, you said, you know, that there were two broad categories. One was metabolic. And you mentioned that, you know, so drugs might kind of tap into these metabolic pathways like metformin and rapamycin. And what was the other major category you mentioned? Uh, so the, the other category that's getting closest uh, to human clinical studies are drugs that target senescent cells. Oh, that's right, senescent cells. So I mentioned cells. The, the kind of metabolic drugs like rapamycin or drugs related to rapamycin and, and metformin. And by the way, there's, there actually was just published this year a, a small but really important clinical trial of using 
uh, a drug like rapamycin given to older people who are at risk for respiratory infections uh, and showing that they had fewer respiratory infections over the course of a year after receiving a, a treatment course of, of a drug like rapamycin. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, rapamycin is another medication that we've actually been using for decades. Maybe you can tell the audience briefly what we've historically used it for. <laughs> well, historically, uh, so rapamycin is approved by the FDA as an immune suppressant, which sounds really scary. Uh, so it's actually used at high doses in people who have organ transplants to help them prevent from rejecting the transplant. It turns out, though, that as we learn more about how rapamycin works, that that's that's sort of a it's sort of a side effect of rapamycin. But what rapamycin really does is it's it's it affects one of these sensing molecules that senses protein, how much protein is 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 in the nutrition of a cell, and it makes a, a clear decision between if there's a lot of protein, it uses that to grow, and if there's not a lot of protein, it turns on uh, recycling and repair pathways. So rapamycin is right at that kind of nexus of how a cell decides what to do, grow or repair, based on the the nutrition around it. So if you feed uh, rapamycin to mice, they live longer. And it's it's one of the most studied, best studied drugs in terms of aging experiments in the laboratory. Um, Now, again, in people, you know, we use it as an immunosuppressant uh, in organ transplants at at high doses. but that the study I mentioned of, of trying to study it in aging context in people uses a much lower dose where you're, you're trying to turn on the repair pathways uh, and, and you know, not get to the point where you're affecting the immune system like that. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then for these, these therapies that are so promising, is it that they're delaying age-related changes, but do any of them seem to actually reverse them? Or is it you know, more kind of staving off the, the slow uh, declines or deteriorations that you know, that we're all kind of programmed to develop? Yeah, the short answer is that, uh, particularly for people, uh, we don't know yet. And this is, this is one of the goals of the, of the first set of clinical studies in, in people, is to understand what these things might do, what we might be able to expect them to do. You know, in, in the laboratory, I'd say that we can, depending on the context and the intervention, you can potentially do, do both. You can slow things down, and you can also, you know, the, the word that gets thrown around is rejuvenation which just means you know, improving something in an older animal. But there are, there are some ways to do that too. But again, whether, whether and how they'll translate to people is what we need to really work out now. Mm-hmm. And then we were talking about medication and things that you know, in a way are, are fairly focused. Do you think things like um, diet interventions are possible to study or are they just kind of too broad and complex? I mean, I know it's possible to study, but it just occurs to me that there's even if you put people on a certain diet, you know, there are so many variables in it that maybe it's just too much mm-hmm. of a challenge to then determine how it's uh, how it's going to change people's health. Diets are hard to study, and this is why you know so many of your listeners are probably can probably get confused hearing all the you know the the latest and greatest nutritional news about this is good for you and this is bad for you and this is the best diet and that's the best diet because diets are hard to study in people in part because people are all different from each other. Uh, you can do it though, um, so I'll, I'll tell you about a way that we're actually doing it, and also a way that they're they're it's hard to study. Maybe I'll tell you the hard to study first, and I'll end on the, the positive yeah. note. So I, I mentioned I, we talked a little bit about dietary restriction, eating less in animals, and that helps most animals live longer, but not all animals. It depends on on the strain or the breed or the genetics. Um, so there was a really interesting experiment done, and this, this is 
maybe I'll tell you listeners a little bit about how we how we do this sort of science uh, in a laboratory, where a group in Texas took a couple strains of mice and and bred them uh, in all sorts of different ways to create uh, about forty different strains, and then all forty strains they tested dietary restriction. Mm-hmm. So what did you see? What were the results? If you looked at all forty strains on average, they lived longer. Uh, they lived longer by you know. Uh, by about what you would expect from looking at earlier experiments of, of single mouse strains. But if you looked at the 40 strains individually, what was the effect of dietary restriction on each one? Uh, it was all over the map. Some of them, it helped a lot. Mm. Some of them, it actually, they actually lived shorter lives. It actually harmed them. Now, on average, for all of them, it, was, it helped them live longer. But it was very different based on the individual genetics. So I think that was that was a great lesson that uh, you know those mouse strains were still more similar to each other than we are to each other genetically. You know, people are all different from each other, and so it's and when you're doing diet studies, it's hard to it's hard to predict what sort of diet is going to help the individual in front of you, and and we don't know enough to be able to to kind of test that yet. That's 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 a frontier of precision medicine that we haven't quite reached yet to be able to say that based on someone's genetics and their epigenetics and their their environment that you know this is the sort of uh, nutrition that's most optimized for them in order to reach the goal of you know for example uh, helping their muscle strength or turning on their repair pathways. Uh, we just don't know how to do that yet. Right. But we can study diets well, anyway. But maybe that's when Yes, but also it makes me think that maybe that's when the sort of research that you that your colleagues are doing on just understanding the markers exactly. at the cellular level can be helpful because then you might try somebody on a diet maybe based on you know looking at their genetics and epigenetics and that you would ideally have something you could look at to see if you were on the right track. That's exactly that's exactly the goal. Um, uh, and and to know what markers you want to look at. So, you know, for example, maybe someone needs a diet that can help to, you know, maybe because of their genetics, you know, nothing they have control over, uh, you know, maybe their protein repair pathways are a little bit less than other people. And maybe they, you know, they would, they could use a boost in those protein repair pathways. And maybe, uh, maybe there'll be ways to do that with, with drugs, with medications. Maybe another way would be to do it through uh, changing their diet from time to time. And, and eventually we'll know uh, exactly how to, how to predict that and how to counsel that person. Mm-hmm. You know, I've read uh, in the past year a few popular books about, you know, eating and lifestyle changes to protect your brain or slow down your, your aging. And a number of these uh, authors, most of whom are, you know, medical professionals, I don't think everything they're recommending is, is evidence-based. And I don't think it would be considered quite the mainstream right now. So I, I think it's too soon to know whether they're ahead of the curve where we'll all end up or kind of out on left field where yeah. we'll never go. But but many of them recommend, you know, people checking their inflammatory markers in their blood, things like like CRP as a metric. Do you think that's a what do you think of that? I've been trying to figure out whether that how sound that sounds to me. There's a there's a lot of elements in in the aging field where there's a there's kind of a sound basis in the laboratory, but we just when you ask the question of you know how to use this in people, you know, we just don't know. Uh, but there's, but there's a you know a theoretical underpinning for it, and even an underpinning in data in the laboratory. But uh, I, you know, I've, I've certainly learned to always be cautious about extrapolating things from the laboratory into, uh, you know, into real life and into, uh, into people. And there's a few examples of that. I mean, one is uh, one is certainly the uh, so most 
uh, a lot a lot of this diet and nutrition stuff kind of falls in that category where you know I've talked a lot about how you know dietary restriction and fasting is is great for laboratory animals and there's a real solid scientific basis for that um, but I think the best you could say for people is that in the laboratory one way or the other it's this this idea of being in a fasting metabolic state once in a while no matter how you do it is good for the health in the laboratory and so maybe it's good for people or maybe it's not because maybe people are different from laboratory experiments in important ways that we don't know yet or maybe you're the strain of person exactly. for whom it's not so there's so there's reasons to think that that <laughs> uh-huh. might be a good idea we just really don't know and i'd put the i'd put inflammation stuff into that basket too there's there's certainly a lot of reason to think that inflammation is an important marker of aging. Uh, inflammation is an important mediator of aging, and we're understanding more and more these days exactly why that is and how that is on a more detailed level, having to do with, for example, senescent cells. But we really don't know whether whether a person can use, uh, for example, CRP or other inflammatory markers as a measure of their own aging. We just don't have the data to guide us on that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, so it's all being studied, but such an amazing, interesting field to be in. And I have to say, it really seems to me like this is the future of uh, of medicine. You know, you're right there in the trenches um, for it. So in closing up, uh, I know a lot of, you know, people are, are eager to remain healthy and functional as long as possible. So based on your research and what you know so far, what, if anything, do you suggest to people who want to preserve their, their health and abilities for as long as possible? Stay active. You can't say enough how important it is to, to move and be active and exercise in any way you can. I'd say, you know, I, I can't say eat this diet or that diet, but, but eat, in a, eat in a healthy way broadly. And I think we know kind of some outlines of what that looks like. Don't eat too much, at least not all the time. Eat things that you can recognize as food. And, um, and, and maybe once in a while, you know, do something that, uh, do something that makes you a little bit hungry. It's okay to be hungry once in a while. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Have you made any changes to your own lifestyle? Uh, you know, are you fasting now? That's, you know, that's also become kind of popular intermittent fasting or occasional fasting. Yeah. I, I will sheepishly admit that I'm, I'm not trying to live forever, but I've been, uh, I've been doing a, a what I realized eventually was a form of intermittent fasting for a few years now, just to try to keep off the the weight of residency. And you know, it's it's a it's a change to my lifestyle that I was able to do in a way that other changes to my lifestyles just didn't seem to didn't seem to fit very well. Yes, something, finding something you can something stick with is also me. so. Uh... Which is important. Uh, people can think about you know it's it's so easy to say be more active, eat a little bit less, or be more socially engaged. You know. But people should think about how to work this into their into their lifestyle and what works for them, and not just at the you know precision medicine genetics level, uh, but just in the what do they like, what do they enjoy doing, uh, and what do they what do they think that they can do consistently for a long time because it doesn't feel like work; it just feels like you know fun, part of their life. Yeah, yeah. I also think about that you know because part of our work in geriatrics is is. Uh is pointing out that doing certain things is pretty burdensome and, you know, and if it seems like it's only for a small benefit, is it really worth doing? And so I think about that, that changing what you eat every day for years is, is a big commitment. And so sometimes I caution people against forcing a certain diet, especially on an, an older relative who maybe isn't feeling so well. That, so, and that's, know, that's so really important, important, Leslie, and worth, worth talking about for a minute that also, you know, older people have different needs and based in their biology. And we've learned this in the laboratory too. 
that the things that our body does best may, may change over time. So what are some examples of that? We know how important it is for older people to maintain their weight. When you're older, you really don't want to be, unless you have a lot of weight to lose, you don't really want to be losing weight. You want to just maintain things. And if you start losing weight unexpectedly, your doctor is going to get really nervous. So often for older people, maintaining weight is more important than losing weight. Um, and uh, protein, for example, we were talking about rapamycin and, and how it's a protein sensor and maybe uh, eating less protein might actually help to kind of delay aging in a sense in the laboratory. But in older people, that's flipped exactly on its head because of this. And by, by older, you mean really people who are kind of over 80 as opposed to people who are uh, 60. People who are, people who are physiologically old. Age is not a number, remember? <laughs> I know, but we need to approximate at least. Yeah, well, let's say um, people who are starting to feel like they're feel like weakness or mobility uh, problems are starting to creep. Who are being becoming frailer. becoming frailer? Yeah, because you need protein now. You need to turn on those growth pathways to keep your muscle mass. Um, so, so actually, older people, frailer people who eat more protein, do a better job of maintaining their muscle mass and keeping frailty at bay. Whereas if they ate less protein, they would start to lose that muscle mass even faster. So our needs change. Yeah, no, I do actually recommend protein to a fair number of uh, my patients. But, you know, in person, I'm seeing people who are more likely to be over 85 yeah. and yeah. frailer, not just over 85, because there, are, you know, as we said, there are 90 year olds playing tennis who aren't exactly. particularly frail. Yeah, so that's, uh, so I think that's an important insight that, you know, within because sometimes older people, older adults is used to describe everybody who's 60 and over. And within that, there's this huge diversity. And that depending on where people are at, you know, internally, physiologically, they may need or respond to things differently than they would have 10, 20 years before at a time when they were less physiologically aged. Well, that's a great, great insight. Any last words of advice or, or resources uh, that you want to share? Well, I think, I think stay active and uh, do your best to stay healthy and stay engaged. And remember to enjoy life too. And support research. And support research. <laughs> is the last <laughs> bit so that we can keep learning about this, which is just uh, amazing and is going to help us all. Well, John, thank you so much for taking the time today to talk about this in so much detail. I just can't wait to see what you and your colleagues learn next. Oh, thanks, Leslie. It's been my pleasure. And with that, I'm going to wrap up this episode of Better Health While Aging. If you have any questions about something you heard in this episode, you can post it on the show notes page for the episode. I'll also be posting some links to some of the resources that I mentioned in the episode. To find the show notes, visit betterhealthwhileaging.net and click podcast in the main menu at the top. Last but not least, if you've been enjoying the podcast, don't forget to support us by subscribing on iTunes. And if you've already done that, please leave a rating and review. This makes it easier for others to discover our show in iTunes, and I would love for the many people who are interested in health or aging or family caregivers to be able to find it and give it a chance. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Dr. Leslie Kernison, and I'm looking forward to you joining us for future episodes.